Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. Today, over the magic of the internet, I have joining me Mr. Ayaz Akhtar, my buddy, my co-host on other shows like Podcast Without Pretense, and of course, uh, a, a, a big wig over at CNET. And uh, also somebody who knows a thing or two about uh, the law, as it turns yeah. out. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me back. Uh, it was fun doing the Tech piece. And now I think because of my my strange past, I was asked to discuss uh, some tech lawsuits. Yeah. Originally, we were going to look at uh, a list, like four or five big lawsuits in tech. But two of the, the suits that that Ayaz brought up to me before we got started, before we really dove into the topic, are really fascinating. They also tie into another uh, topic that we covered recently on Tech Stuff, that being Atari, when we talked about the rise and fall of Atari in a epic three-part series. So these two lawsuits have uh, Atari in common as as one of the 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 participants in said suits. And I, as I'm so glad you're here to explain not just what 
happened and what are the particulars of the case, but why it's important. Because both of these cases took place fairly early on in the era of home video games, and as a result would end up really shaping the way video games are treated uh, under copyright law. Yeah, so uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, I went to law school, I graduated, I passed the bar in New York State, I immediately got a job in technology, ended up doing that for the rest of my career. Um, and so there, there's, a, there's, there's a long history of why I became a lawyer, you know, parents, you know, first generation American, like be, be a lawyer or a doctor. So I gave them a law degree uh, and I took intellectual property in school. And these cases, the ones that we're going to talk about, were presented to me back to back. And it was just maddening to try to figure out the differences, why one case went one way and why went another. And we'll get all into that. But um, I'm really kicking myself because I used to have my my books, my notebooks. I'm like, I'll never need my briefs anymore. <laughs> and so I chucked them out. And so here we go talking about two cases that I learned a long time ago. So uh, if there are any errors, I apologize. But we have looked over the cases several times today, personally. Yeah. And I've looked at two or three times today. And yeah. uh, written up notes. Again, I printed out one of them to write notes because yeah. that's how I used to do it back in the day. Yeah, to the, point, to the point where you have hard copy in front of you. I literally have my penciled out notes all over based on book briefs, which I used to do when I was in school. Wow. So the first of the two cases we're talking about, and as I has pointed out, these have to do with intellectual property, with copyright uh, which is a tricky subject, right? I've talked about it several times on tech stuff, and in general, copyright uh, is uh, about making sure someone who creates a, a work of some sort that's in a fixed, tangible medium uh, has some sort of protection that that you don't have to worry about, or rather, you have some recourse if someone were to try and copy that work. You could pursue action against them based upon the copyright. It gives you that that. Uh, level of protection and anything that you set down in a fixed tangible medium technically is protected by copyright. Registering a copyright, however, is a great idea because then there's an official record of said copyright if you should ever have cause to, you know, bring that up in court. Um, this is one of those things where it really only plays out as soon as there is, is either a lawsuit or the threat of a lawsuit. Otherwise, it's kind of a, it's it's kind of in the background. And the first case that we wanted to talk about was Atari versus Amusement World, which sounds like the most fun lawsuit ever. <laughs> it definitely does. Uh, the case is from way back in 1981. Yeah. And it was uh, the U.S. District Court in Maryland. And uh, the, it's a pretty simple idea. So we have two different companies. We've got Atari. And they held the copyright for Asteroids. Yeah, uh, you guys probably have heard of that game. You've probably seen it. You know, I, just saying asteroids, I'm sure you guys have a picture in your head. There's a little triangular ship and there, and there are rocks flying at you and you blow them up, right? Right. So, Un so until you get blown up by either a rock or one of the few little enemy spaceships that would occasionally pop up. Yeah. So another company called Amusement World, which again is a great name. Uh, it's not as creative as Atari. As <laughs> when I listened to the three-parter on Atari, finding out where the names came from, I'm like, this is pretty awesome to hear. Yeah. Um, so. These guys basically saw the idea and they're like, we, we could make our own game. Mm -hmm. And, uh, one of the big things that you're going to get out of this case is that you can't, you can't have a monopoly on an idea. So they are free to make a game, but Atari saw this game and they're like, wait a second, this triangular ship, you're blowing up rocks. You're totally stealing our stuff and we're suing you. Right. 
And another thing to keep in mind is this is early enough in the in the era of video games that the court had not fully decided that video games were something you could totally copyright. In fact, in the other case we're going to talk about, there's a note in the court's decision that says these game, video games are not something you can fully copyright, but there are elements of copyright protection that do extend to video games. And it gets into particulars that we're probably not going to cover in this in this podcast. But just to say that this was kind of a Wild West era of both the home video game industry and of law because technology had outpaced what the legal system was ready to cover. And we see that again and again, not just in video games, obviously, but in all realms of technology and law. You see that with things like the autonomous cars coming out and people saying, wait a minute, how do we what sort of legislation do we need to put up to deal with this new reality of technology? And it just turns out that, you know, the law is something that has to catch up <laughs> to our changing world. Uh, and in this case, you know, we had we had a. a an interesting uh, uh, case brought forth by Atari saying, here are some of the things that we say are the similarities between our game and this other game called Meteors, uh, Asteroids and Meteors. I mean, already, <laughs> just with <laughs> just with the names, you're like, uh, guys, maybe we should come up with a different you know, title. Uh, but they, the court identified a bunch of multiple points of similarity. Now, in cases of, of trying to determine whether uh, an author has plagiarized another author, for example. Often courts will ask for some third party, preferably a, 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 a third party that has no interest in the outcome of the case, to identify any points of similarity and then give his or her opinion as to whether or not the points of similarity indicate uh, a case of plagiarism or if, in fact, it could have just been coincidence, because, as we're all aware, different people can come up with similar ideas at around the same time, and it's not always a case of, of plagiarism. So here are some of the points of similarity. Both games involve the player shooting and destroying rocks, and in both games, there are actually three different sizes of rocks. Uh, those rocks would appear in waves, with the initial waves being composed of bigger rocks, uh, when you shoot them, they would break into medium-sized rocks. Medium-sized rocks would break into small rocks. Small rocks would disappear when you shot them. And the speed of the rocks would depend upon their size. So large rocks move more slowly than small ones. So as you're spinning around with your little ship in both asteroids and meteors, uh, as you shoot these rocks, they start getting smaller and they start moving faster. So, you know, you develop your strategy around that. Uh, and in both, if you got hit by a rock... Game over, right? Or at least your your player life for that one ended. You would usually get multiple lives per game. Um, and both games had enemy spaceships, and uh, the enemy spaceships came in two different sizes for both games. The bigger ones were worth fewer points than the smaller ones, uh, the idea being that the smaller ones are harder to hit, therefore they're worth more points. Both the player ships and the enemy spaceships could shoot projectiles. Uh, impact would be automatic destruction, which would be accompanied by, I think they actually said, the symbol of an explosion. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, this is this is early days of video games, guys. You remember, like, there's not a heck of a lot you can do yeah. when it comes to graphically representing anything. So we're talking some pretty primitive-looking graphics. So it, it's the stuff that gets laid out here in the next case 
it actually determines how like we could have so many side scrollers. It's just it's such a bizarre way to go. Yeah. And, well, and that's something else that will come up in this discussion is that part of the reason the cases turned out the way they did is, be- again, it's so early on in the era of video games that people had not really well, one, the technology had not advanced to the point where you could have very different depictions of, uh, uh, you know, different interpretations of the same basic idea. You were limited in that because the technology itself was limited. So it's not like you could, you know, have one that looks like asteroids where you've got this top down view of a little triangle shooting rocks. And the other one, you have a photorealistic, you know, a space simulator where you're flying through shooting rocks. Uh, so the technology itself was limited and thus uh, a lot of people figured that the ability to express an idea itself was limited because of that. Um, but there's some other similarities that I thought were kind of like, well, there's no reason that you could argue one game would have to have this particular element versus the other. For example, both games had a two-tone beeping noise that increased in tempo as the game progressed. So like, uh, 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 and we just get faster and faster. Um, both games had scores for players that were displayed in the same sections of the screen. So in other words, like the player one score would be in the upper left corner and the player two score would be the upper right corner. Uh, both games had a uh, thrust button. They would let the player's ship move in whatever direction it happened to be facing at the time. Um, Ayas, have you ever played Asteroids, like the arcade version of Asteroids? I've actually played the home version of, Arca- of Asteroids. I don't think I've ever played it in the arcade, actually. Yeah, the arcade version was uh, tough. I mean, this would be the home version because it is Atari. Uh, I believe it's not the video game version. I mean, maybe it could be the video game version because Atari did have both divisions, but... Um, the, the buttons on the asteroids game were what would allow you to turn the ship left, turn the ship right, or use thrust. Um, obviously you would just use a, a, a direction on your joystick. Usually I think pressing up would give you the thrust in the home version. Uh, but in both versions, if you released the thrust, then gradually your ship would come to a halt. Although the court did, did actually Notice that this happens more quickly in meteors than in asteroids. Uh, in both games, at 10,000 points, you get an extra life. And each successfully completed wave of rocks initiates a new wave. And each new wave has more rocks in it than the previous wave. So those were the similarities that the court noticed between these two games. And there are a lot of them. I mean, there's the very basic nature of the game seems identical in these cases, right? I mean, I, it would be hard for me to argue otherwise, I would think. Yeah, I mean, if if uh, it's kind of like modern games, you think of like Call of Duty versus any other uh, Battlefield game. You think of any any kind of uh, war game. They're yeah. all kind of the same, but why is that even allowed? And uh, th- There are differences in these two games, Meteors and Asteroids. So Asteroids had this... Uh, had a black field underneath the actual game. Yeah. But in Meteors, you had this star field. And the look of distant stars. And this is kind of really pushing it. Because when you're looking at the... If you ever seen the, the photos of the, this, this game, you'll see they're just basically dots. Yeah. So that's kind of neat. Yeah. Uh, Asteroids is black and white. And uh, Meteors was in color. So mm-hmm. that was pretty different. Meteors also had uh, some shading on the spaceship and the rocks. So it kind of had more dimension. Because Asteroids is pretty flat looking. 
when it comes to ships and rocks. Yeah, almost like a schematic drawing. Like it's, 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 or almost abstract in a way because the rocks all look the same and they all just kind of float at you and then you shoot them and now they're, they're different sized, but they, the shapes are still very much the same and they're still floating at you. It's not, you know, there's no real sense of, uh, the dimensionality in the original asteroids game. I really like the element that Meteors starts off. When you start off the game, there's an animation of you blasting off of Earth. Yeah. Compare that to Asteroids, you just start and you're just in this, in the field, time to go. Right. Um, you've got the game Meteors is actually faster in general and it move, and you have a different way of shooting as well. Mm-hmm. You could, con- you could shoot a lot more, I think, continuously compared to Asteroids. Right. Asteroids was like a burst fire thing. You could fire a, a few shots, but then you had to wait. Uh, it's almost like a recharge period. Is I missing anything else? Those are the main ones. That's the main ones. I mean, uh, you know, there were there was also the fact that the meteors and meteor and meteors rather could tumble. Like they they actually they actually seemed to rotate as they were coming toward you. Whereas the uh, if you watch the old asteroids game, those shapes just they maintain their same orientation as they move across. So there was that too. So there were some definite improvements on the game. So uh, Amusement World had to defend itself against these claims of copyright infringement. They tried a couple of different tactics. Uh, the first thing they, they tried was uh, they said that Atari's copyright on asteroids was invalid in this case because of the way they registered their copyright. So they said that Atari had registered asteroids copyright as an audiovisual work, not as a literary work. And that as a result, the copyright wasn't valid. They said that Atari had submitted essentially a, a film, a video of one out of a possible infinite variations of a single game. So in other words, they captured gameplay footage of asteroids and that particular gameplay footage was being uh, sent as uh, as part of the uh, the the work that Atari was submitting to get this copyright. And I guess Amusement World was essentially saying, well, technically, wouldn't that just give copyright to that specific film? <laughs> like, that was, that's such a great argument. It's taking, like you were saying, this is the Wild West. It's the early days of video games. And how are they protected? So the idea that, that Amusement World is pushing is, wait a second, that's a tape or a recording. You definitely have protection for that. But you're suing us about the game yeah. itself. And the court was like, wait, whoa, wait a second. Okay. Now, they did uh, put the work in a tangible medium, and that happens to be the circuitry. Yeah. And it's not so easy to just send us a arcade cabinet. Right. This is the way it used to be. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because the ROM chip, I mean, the game is hard-coded on a, a, a circuit board, and that circuit board's only useful if you have it connected up to the rest of the, the system. So, yeah, I mean, you would have to have had Atari send a full console like, I mean, a full, like, Atari cabinet out to the patent office, that, or rather the copyright office, and uh, uh, deliver that and say, like, here's our fixed tangible medium. <laughs> and, and hilariously, I know a lot of people think the law is kind of messed up and it, and it allows for absurd results. If this kind of actual event that's happening right now we're talking about, if, they, if Atari had to send an actual cabinet every single time it made a game, that would cause such a ludicrous amount of storage requirements by the government 
It would make no sense. It and w- can you imagine filing these arcade cabinets? <laughs> well, it would have made the copyright office a much more fun place to work. <laughs> It'd be a great, br- a fantastic break area where you're like, we guess, guess what? We got this other game hasn't even come out in the arcades yet. Um, this- <laughs> you know, it's very true. It, very see, true. to me, this, this is the argument I would make with this. Like, uh, if you were trying to, to say, like, well, what is this similar to? Let's say that I write a play. And for some reason that I cannot even come up with right now, I uh, submit my play to the copyright office, not by sending in a script to to be copied, you know, to register the copyright, but rather I put on a performance of the play and then I uh, I record the performance on uh, using a video camera or whatever. And I send that in to be copyright. Uh, that you could argue like, well, you're copywriting the performance of this play, but the play itself, you still haven't registered. That's kind of the argument Amusement World was making. And ultimately, the court dismissed this argument and said, all right, you know, for for practicality's sake, just for the same reasons that I as was mentioning earlier, we have to draw the line somewhere. And a video depicting gameplay footage is going to be differentiated from a a film in that we're not saying that this one video uh, representation of the game is the only thing that is protected under copyright because it's ludicrous. But yeah, but it could have gone the other way. <laughs> it, it, that could have been the first case where they're saying, actually, you're right. They didn't send us a circuit board. Yeah. Um, well, no, we, we're, you're right. There's no copyright protection. Uh, and don't forget, copyright covers a heck of a lot of things, include, including derivative works. Yeah. So if Jonathan did send in that recording, if I transcribed it and go, ha-ha, I can sell this because you didn't copyright the actual script, clearly it's derivative of what you've done. So mm-hmm. that's it's supposed to reward the content creator. It's supposed to be about furthering uh, society because you, when you write something, you're protected and you can actually enjoy the fruits of your labor. And that's the whole point of copyright in a nutshell. Yeah, and it and it does get complicated. I mean, using that other example of the play and shooting a video, let's say that I haven't sent in the script for copyright yet. Iaz comes to a rehearsal of this play that has not yet been copyrighted. He videotapes the rehearsal and copyrights the videotape, and now suddenly he's got a registered copyright, assuming that it's granted. He has a registered copyright for this thing. I haven't copyrighted my script, and his registration would predate anything I would send in, which would cause further complications. So, you know, the whole point of this is to try and create as clear a record of ownership as possible. But if you don't do your part in that, then you can't expect to have the protection that it would grant you. So uh, in this case, I guess it was a good thing that the court said, hey, uh, the the audio visual thing is not um, not a barrier. It's not something that is going to count against Atari in this case. But Amusement World then had to change its tactics and said that uh, what Atari was trying to do was claim copyright protection of the idea of a video game in which the player tries to survive encounters with asteroids and enemy spaceships. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. 
on the network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. So this is where we get into another interesting uh, uh, facet of copyright because, as it turns out, an idea by itself is not something that's guaranteed protection. Yeah, there's a whole thing about idea versus the expression of an idea. And uh, you're going to get familiar with this jeweled bee pendant. And uh, what this, this thing is, if, if there was this lawsuit, uh, I'll do it real quick. There was one manufacturer of a, think of it like a brooch or a pin that a person would wear. Mm-hmm. It was a bee that had jewels on it. So somebody saw that idea. I was like, hey, that's a really cool idea. I'm going to make the same thing. So the first person who made the bejeweled bee said, no, I'm suing you for, uh, for copyright. That's mine. And the court said, listen, there's only one way to show a jeweled bee. That's it. Now, granted, we could have a different a pattern on the actual bee, but a bee, if you're trying to keep it realistic, is going to have the black and yellow or sort of brown and yellow kind of stripes. It's going to have wings. There are elements you cannot change about this. And there's only one true way to do this. In that case, you do the first person does have a copyright on that actual item, but it's not exactly terribly strong. Another person can actually make the same thing. 
also have a copyright on it, which is, sounds a little bit bizarre if you think about it. Mm-hmm. But because you can't copyright the idea, this is free to copy. And, you know, you still have a copyright. It's just such a weak, uh, weak copyright that it's, it's very, very strange. And that's yeah. basically what gets applied to this case. Yeah, so, yeah. The, this, this idea that, Okay, so the the idea itself is not copyrightable. That there, you could have the reasonable expectation that different people would want to create a game based on this same kernel of an idea. The argument then becomes: Well, how many different ways are there to express that idea? If it turns out there's really only one method of doing it, you can't truly have protection of that because it would be silly, right? If it's, it's only if there are multiple ways to express that idea that you, you could argue, well, this person copied you and they didn't have to, they could have expressed that same idea in a totally different and novel way. Uh, so therefore they are, they are actively violating your copyright. You have a legitimate, uh, a legitimate complaint. So what the court had to decide in this case was, did what the, the the stuff that Amusement World did by creating meteors, did they, in fact, copy Atari or did they simply employ the the same ideas because there was really only that way to express a game where you are trying to maneuver a spacecraft through an asteroid belt while you're being shot at by enemy spaceships and. That must have been a really interesting deliberation to go through and say, all right, well, which elements here do we think are essentially universal in the sense that anyone who wanted to make a game that represented this kind of uh, idea would have to do it this way versus uh, which one of these ideas uh, could you do in a myriad of other ways, but they chose to copy Atari's method. And in this case, it ended up um kind of a favoring uh, amusement world amusement world uh is not found uh, guilty of copyright infringement in this case because yeah. there is apparently the idea expression unity is true in this particular case that's what the court's saying they're saying look there is like one way to do this so if you had a spaceship and you're going to blow up a rock in this in space those rocks have to disappear in one of two or three different ways, okay? It's either going to break up into one piece, two pieces, three pieces. If it breaks up into a million pieces, the game becomes somewhat unplayable because you'll just lose all the time. They're saying that both games start off somewhat easy, which is to encourage people to play the game. Mm-hmm. But that's something that you can't really say, we'll start the game really hard, and that'll be a different game. So there's enough elements that, in this case, the course saying, look, if you're flying around in space and that you're blowing up rocks, this is kind of the only way to do it because you just there's no way around this. Uh, and I want to just uh, quickly mention that both of these guys, Amusement World and Atari, both have copyright protection. It's that the protection doesn't give them a monopoly mm-hmm. because of the idea expression unity. That's what the thing is. It's about a monopoly on something more so than it is protection, because even though these games are very similar and they they act in a very similar way. They both still have copyrights on those products. Which is really, I mean, this is that's mind-bending to me, particularly when we get to the discussion of the second case where we start saying, "Wait a minute, I don't the, the, on a very like high level, 
it can be hard to distinguish between the two, the differences that, that mark one case versus the other, because as it turns out, uh, the court decisions in the second case we're going to, to talk about go in a, in a different direction than the one we just mentioned. And that's, that's probably why I mean, I mean, I imagine that's why you, when you were studying law, you had these two cases kind of presented together as a way of, uh, 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 illustrating this this idea of um, the copyright of the expression of an idea versus the idea itself. Yeah, like I said in the beginning, this was maddening to go back to back with. Uh, the case we, <laughs> the, the next case, uh, this is 1982. It's decided by the United States Court of Appeals, Seventh Circuit, and it's Atari versus North American Philips Consumer Electronics Corp. You might know them as Philips. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the case, they they are constantly called North American because that's just the shorthand. Because in 82, that's just the way it was. Yeah. And on top of that, Phillips happened to be the maker of something called the Odyssey, which I'm sure not only have I heard it discussed on tech stuff, mm-hmm. I kind of remember the Odyssey because I remember the, the actual ads and magazines. And I'm like, what's an Odyssey? So here's the that thing. Seems- I think I actually own the game that's in question here. Yeah, the game in question here is uh, <laughs> there's, there's two games. Okay? Yeah, there's Atari's, Atari's got the Atari has in this particular world. In 1982, Atari has a Midway have the rights to make a Pac-Man game. Who yeah. owns the copyright on Pac-Man at this Na- point? Namco. Na- so, so Namco had the, Namco owns the game, but, uh, Midway and Atari had the United States, the, the, the exclusive United States rights to, uh, Pac-Man. So you could think of, uh, Atari almost being a, a, you know, like the representation of Namco in the U.S. Because uh, of the way that games would be published and then distributed globally. So while Namco technically is the owner of Pac-Man, Atari could act in that capacity within the United States. Yeah, that's like the whole point of copyright. You have the right. Namco has the right. And they own this this character. They own uh, every derivative work. And they're like, hey, listen, now that we have this, we can sell the license to somebody else to do something with it. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why people are ferociously fighting about this, because they want to have the exclusive right. Atari paid money for these rights. Right. And they don't want want to uh, lose market share because Phillips decides to make a better Pac-Man game. Uh, So this this game that eventually comes out is called Casey Munchkin, (laughs) a game I had never heard of before. I I had not. I thought I swore when I saw that you had put this as one of the the lawsuits we were going to talk about. This was before we had decided just to focus on Atari. I saw the name KC Munchkin and I thought, I don't, I've never heard of this game. Then I watched a video of the gameplay and I said, I think I own this game, <laughs> <laughs> but I had no memory of the name of it. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a maze game. Let, let, let's talk about the little, the what happened, the little facts about this, this, uh, infringing work. Sure. As that, this is being called. So there's a game developer. His name is Ed Averett and a Mr. Stop. And in the case, they don't actually give Stop a first name. So I don't know what his name is, his first name. But he's the head of, of Philips' home video game development, and that's for the Odyssey. So they see Pac-Man in an ar- airport arcade, and they decide, hey, we could build a better version for the Odyssey home console. Now, Everett had made 21 other video games, so he's, he's got a good track record when it comes to making games. But St- Stop and Everett both decide that, hey, listen, if we had the Pac-Man name on this game, it would do so much better. Mm-hmm. So, Average starting to do some development on the game. North American at this point, or Phillips, 
is uh, trying to get the license from Midway. Say, hey, can we just make a game with you guys with a license? And the company, Midway, says, no, we're not giving you a license. So Everett's kind of building a game that's not even done yet. He's told that we don't have the license, so Everett continues to build this game. Right. And it turns out to be Casey Munchkin. Right. The idea being to make a game similar to Pac-Man without being exactly Pac-Man. And also the idea of making this, quote unquote, better than the arcade version. So it was it it wasn't built as a clone of Pac-Man, but it you you know, it's undeniable that it shares a lot of similarities to Pac-Man. Yeah, so Abbott finishes this game called Casey Munchkin. North American says, can we review the game? We want to make sure it's totally different from Pac-Man. And so they see the game. They go, okay, we need to change some things. First, change the protagonist's color. He's not going to be yellow. So that that's a big flag. So they change the color of, of Munchkin from yellow to blue. They also told retailers, do not call this Pac-Man. Do not reference Pac-Man. Whatever you do, don't call it Pac-Man. Uh, so what actually happens in reality, retailers call it, Odyssey's Pac-Man yeah. or a Pac-Man type game because is- that's going to sell copies to customers. And that's what the stores are concerned with. They don't the stores aren't concerned with copyright. They're concerned with moving inventory. Yeah. So that didn't help anything for <laughs> Philip because they're like, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. And so uh, Atari gets wind of this. They go, listen, uh, we're, we're suing you because you are infringing on our copyright here. We have the rights to do this. You don't have the rights to do this. And they look for a preliminary injunction to get this game off the shelves. They don't want this game being sold. And in the first case, uh, Atari loses. Okay, Atari does not get their injunction to start with. And that's how it ends up at the Court of Appeal, Seventh Circuit. Because the Court of Appeals is taking this appeal to find out what happens. And they decide it is infringement. Yeah. Which will make your head explode as we describe the games. Because it's very strange why this, in this case... There is infringement versus the Asteroids Meteors case. Yeah. Now, before we get into that, just so just so people can kind of understand, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, Ayaz, but can you can you sort of give an overview of of what the appeals process is? In case, because, as you pointed out, Atari had lost the case, but then was able to take it to another court. Well, I mean, so the, the first case was adjudicated. And is this in this particular case, you have to show, when you're looking for an injunction, you have to show irreparable harm, okay? Uh, if you're looking for irreparable harm, you have to explain that you cannot be made whole with money, right? Mm. So if you have, uh, if you're talking about Apple and Samsung, they're like, hey, look, don't sell those phones. And the court's like, no, you know what? If, if this stays on the shelves, they can just pay you money because that's, that's the only thing you're going to lose. You're just going to lose on profits. Well, that's what they'll pay out. Uh, same thing with this kind of deal. The court, the lower court found, look, there was no irreparable harm here, so we're not going to stop this game from being sold. Um, then Atari just basically files a motion for, of appeal. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's basically how that, that works. They file the appeal, and then this court decides to take a look at uh, everything that happened in the first case. And pretty much, I believe, in this in this appeals process, all the facts are pretty much stipulated. So there's not a heck of a lot of disagreement. You're not having, like, an argument about, um, oh, you know, uh, these two guys didn't see it at an airport. They saw it somewhere in Atari's headquarters. Whatever facts are in that first case are kind of taken as as that. Right. That's just like this is reality. We we yeah. can't can't look outside of this reality. We just right. have to decide looked, if this was correctly uh, if this if the the court decision was correct in this case. 
Exactly. And they're looking at did the court abuse discretion? Did they do anything strange? It's a very narrow kind of thing. And so it's, it's, you're not going to see a lot of, um, if you ever wanted to see a court of appeals kind of argument, be like, I really want to see this. It's going to be like TV. No, it's not going to be an exciting defendant plaintiff argument. It's going to be like, well, that's what happened. And that's what happened. Mm. That's it. It's pretty dull. Well, at any rate, the uh, other thing to keep in mind is that uh, before we talk about how the court described these games, because it is pretty awesome, uh, the, <laughs> the the other thing to remember is that Casey Munchkin came out on the Odyssey before Atari's uh, uh, port. I guess port is probably being way too generous before Atari's version of Pac-Man could come out for the 2600. So uh that was also an issue was that seeing this this other home video game representation of a very similar idea come out on a different console uh before Atari could have its version come out on the Atari 2600 that could I, I'm guessing that also gave Atari some some uh ammunition to say look they're even trying to um to edge us out before we can get our product on store shelves but let's talk about how the court described these games so, uh, the, these descriptions are written up in court documents. You can actually read the full descriptions because, uh, they're pretty long, but, uh, you, you pulled out an excerpt that I think is pretty awesome for, uh, the description of, of, uh, of what Pac-Man is. Yeah. So this is directly from the court case and they're explaining the copyrighted work in this case, Pac-Man. The copyright version of Pac-Man is an electronic arcade maze chase game. Very basically. The game board, which appears on a television-like screen, consists of a fixed maze, a central character, parentheses, expressed as a gobbler, uh, four pursuit characters expressed as ghost monsters, several hundred evenly spaced pink dots, which line the pathways of the maze, four enlarged pink dots, power capsules, approximately located in each of the maze's four corners, and various colored fruit symbols, which appear near the middle of the maze during the play of the game. Yeah, and it goes on to describe in great detail what a Pac-Man game consists of, even going so far as to explain how you accumulate points through uh, having your gobbler gobble pellets, including the power capsules, having it, having your gobbler gobble the various uh, fruit symbols, as well as having your gobbler gobble the ghosts whenever the power capsules allow for roll reversal. And the hunter becomes, or the hunted becomes the hunter, I guess, in that case. I really, um, I really wish these, like, I wish these court descriptions were, like, on the back of boxes when you bought the game. But was, yeah. When this period of vulnerability is about to end, the monsters <laughs> warn the player by flashing alternately blue and white before returning to their original colors. To be fair, it's, this it sounds a lot like, I mean, these games, when they got them for the home consoles, came with instruction booklets. And sometimes the descriptions sounded kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I wrote a little note here where uh, I because I read the same the same court notes as I as did. And I, I love the fact that when they were uh, re- referencing the Casey Munchkin game, which, you know, they point out had a lot of the same elements as the Pac-Man game. They said that the ghost monsters, the three ghost monsters in Casey Munchkin rather than the four in Pac-Man were, quote, much spookier in quote. <laughs> That's right, because they have like little tentacles or or feet or something like that, and yeah. they they creepily move. Yeah, and they also have antenna, so they're 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 extra animated. I believe that was one of the other things they wanted to make mm-hmm. sure the game looked different, and it does look pretty different. Yeah, 
Uh, there's a cool little corral in the middle that yeah. changes versus compared to the corral with uh, Pac-Man. Yeah, yeah. And the Pac-Man is one box that has the ghosts in it, and the ghosts all come out of the top of the box. In uh, Casey Munchkin, all the ghosts are piled on top of each other. The box is it's like a three sided box. There's a there's one side missing and it rotates 90 degrees every few seconds. So the ghost can only come out one direction, depending upon you know whichever way the box is facing at that given moment. That's the only way the ghost can come out, which is kind of interesting. I guess it could be a strategic benefit depending upon where your um, munchkin was. At that given moment, they also said that the gobbler in Casey Munchkin has a personality and that Pac-Man didn't. So sick burn. Yeah, that that is a pretty interesting, uh, what do we call it? Ex- not expression, uh, observation by the court. I'm not exactly sure how Casey shows a personality as a somewhat of a diamond shaped blue faced gobbler. <laughs> well, but- he, he does. He, if he wins, uh, like if you clear out a, a level he smiles. It turns so that it's facing like the, the face is facing the, the viewer as opposed to being in profile. And you get a smile. It looks kind of like Kermit the Frog smiling if Kermit also had like little horns or antenna on top of his head. And then uh, if he got gobbled by a ghost, he frowns before disappearing. So there's the, the fact that he could smile and frown apparently gives him some personality. I think Pac-Man's got a personality. He's just all business. That's right. He's like, I, I got no time for smiling. Yeah, look, I got no time for frowning. There, I just died. There are pellets for chomping. All right. I gotta, I gotta end up chomping these pellets. There, there could be a tricycle that shows up at some point that I need to eat. He's obviously uh, very cautious. You know, fruit keeps disappearing on right? him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he might be paranoid. I believe Pac-Man might be a little paranoid, but maybe I'm reading too much. You into might be, it. you might be projecting on Pac-Man here. 19, oh, this is 1982. So this is a very, it's just fun to hear. The way they describe these games, they have to think of it in the abstract because this is partially, this is not partially, this is very important to determine what parts of this game can be protected by copyright and what part isn't. Because again, if there's only one way to do something, well, it's like the Meteor case. And if yeah. there's more than one way, and I mean like in, in, in significant ways, if there's more than one way to do something, well, maybe that's infringement. Yeah. So some of the things we need to point out are some of the differences between these games, because they sound like they're fairly similar. But there were a lot of interesting differences between the two. Uh, one was that in in Pac-Man, you have these hundreds of pellets, presumably, depending on depending upon how it's uh, depicted. Obviously, the mm-hmm. Atari version was a lot more limited. The Atari home game version was a lot more limited than the uh, the the arcade version. But. Uh, Casey Munchkin, they had 12 dots per level. The dots could actually move through the maze, however, so it gave an extra element of challenge. Plus, in the Casey Munchkin maze, there was one pathway that would end with a dead end. So you had to be careful. If the dot was down there and you needed to retrieve it, you had to make sure you could do so and get out before being trapped by a ghost because there's no other way out. Um, it also had a different different uh, game um, options with KC Munchkin, including one that would turn the level invisible around you whenever you moved. So you had to stay still. Like if you hit a, if you hit a wall and you couldn't move any further, you'd have to stop so that it would show up and you could see whether you could turn in a different direction or if you needed to back out or whatever. So that was also interesting. Uh, they also talked about, uh, how the pellets would be the power pellets in KC Munchkin, because there were power, power pellets in that as well. It also allowed you to 
turn the tables on the ghosts, the three ghosts in Casey Munchkin versus the four in Pac-Man and chomp on them for a short amount of time. But they they were randomly distributed among those 12 pellets as opposed to being in the four corners like it was with Pac-Man. Uh, so there were a lot of differences here. A lot of, uh, in fact, I would argue there appear to be more significant differences in the basic, uh, presentation of the game than you saw with asteroids versus meteors. Yeah. If you were standing at an asteroids, uh, cabinet and you were standing next to a, a meteor cabinet, and they're next to each other. You're just standing in front of them. They would look really similar. Okay. I'm not even kidding. They look extraordinarily similar. Obviously one's in color, one's in black and white, but if you put, Casey Munchkin versus Pac-Man, there is a distinct difference. I mean, even the actual maze, when it comes to the styling of the maze, instead of it being this kind of rounded, a hollow kind of maze, you have these very hard lines. They're mm-hmm. purple. And you, that moving corral in the middle, that's, that sounds pretty interesting. And then there is this dimension of the dots, like you were saying, that move in Casey Munchkin versus Pac-Man, which are stationary. But there's this great line in here. It says, you know, as the gobbler munches more dots, the speed of the remaining dots progressively increases, and the last dot moves at the same speed as the gobbler. In the words of the district court, the last dot cannot be caught by overtaking it. It must be munched by strategy. <laughs> so there's an actual, that's a great line. It's true, though. If you, ha- if you have to have the strategy element, you don't have the exact same thing. In Pac-Man, you have that double wraparound maze where you can just leave to the right, show up on the left. This, this uh, game is... So far, it sounds very different. And as a student, I'm thinking, well, clearly, the uh, Casey Munchkin gang, gang is going to be fine. But, but they're uh, not. Nope. No, not the court finds in favor of Atari. And you might say, well, how the heck can that happen? Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. So one of the elements that came to um, Atari's aid, not on purpose, I mean, this was just something that that, uh, ended up supporting Atari's argument, was that... When you're looking at the implementation of a, ch- a a maze chase game, they they actually categorized it as a maze chase game. The court was able to look at other games that are also within the category of maze chase games, but are designed in a very different, distinct way from Pac-Man. And so the argument could be made, there are other ways to depict this style of game without relying upon the same basic design elements that Pac-Man used. And that ended up being the crux of the argument, right? I think uh, it wasn't one of them. I think it's uh, Rally X was the name of the game. Uh, yep. One of the ones that they, they referenced. So uh, they actually said that because they the Casey Munchkin ended up copying elements of Pac-Man that were integral to what Pac-Man is. You know, it wasn't just a, a, a facet of Pac-Man that didn't really matter. If that had been the case, it might have gone a different way. They said that it's it's fundamentally copying the what what I guess you could argue is the essence of Pac-Man, and that therefore uh, this ended up being uh, Atari had a case, like a legitimate case against the Casey Munchkin game, and they even said that. Um, Here's a quote. It is enough that substantial parts were lifted. No plagiarist can excuse the wrong by showing how much of his work he did not pirate, which actually came from a previous case. They used that as a, a precedent to state that it doesn't matter if you have a lot of original work that is surrounding a kernel, if that kernel has been stolen from someone else, if it's a significant part of someone else's work. And this starts to kind of creep into the concept of fair use as well, because fair use has elements in it where you, you're not just concerned with how much was copied, but what was the nature of the copied material. So in other words, if I as write something and uh, and I end up copying only a small amount of what I as has written, it's I, I've written my own article I'm not citing Ayaz so much as I am taking something he's written and incorporating it within my own work. It may be that I've only taken a couple of sentences from Ayaz, and you might think, well, that should be fair use because it's a small amount. It's not, you know, especially if Ayaz had published a very long piece from which I took those couple of sentences. But if those couple of sentences are at the very heart of what Ayaz was writing about. If that is instrumental in the point he was making, a court might say, well, no, this is a case of plagiarism. 
You're not, it doesn't matter that it was two sentences. What matters is the nature of what was written. And that was part of what played into the court's decision in this case, saying that the elements that were taken, uh, while you can argue they were augmented or tweaked or changed or enhanced or however you want to put it, they are the, the crucial elements of what makes Pac-Man Pac-Man. Yeah. So one, one of the other big things about this, like there, as you were saying, you get copyright protection on lots of different things. And if there's a couple of sentences you took from me and it's, it's at the essence or it's the real crux of what I've been writing, that could be taken as plagiarism. But there's a lot of things that aren't taken as infringement. There's a, a, a legal term for it. It says scenes affair. It's basically having events that naturally would follow. So if somebody decides to have, I don't know, like let's say a three part story arc where you have like a guy and a girl and they meet in act one and then act two, they break up and in act three, they get back together. Mm-hmm. You can't copyright that, that structure okay? right. because that's, that's natural. That seems like how things work. And if that actually happened, there would only be like one rom-com, right? There'd be only one romantic right. comedy. That's the only one that's ever existed and it could never happen. Tom there. Hanks would have been out of work in the late nineties. Exactly. Or he would be doing the reboot every two years and they would relicense <laughs> it. Uh, and so, the the scenes of Pac-Man, the things that would make sense that anybody could copy is what uh, the court was saying here with certain things. The maze and scoring table are standard game devices. So anybody can have a maze and a scoring table. Nothing wrong with that. The tunnel exits are nothing more than commonly used wraparound concept adapted to a maze chase game. So that's fine. Mm-hmm. You want to use dots? That's fine. And the real problem here was the fanciful creations. Pac-Man and ghosts. That there this gobbling character that just like wanders around popping pills yeah. and being chased by ghosts. <laughs> this it's starting to this, sound like an episode of Breaking Bad. <laughs> this particular implementation, this expression is Pac-Man. This is, you could do anything. Rally X is a car game. Yeah. So you have a car running around and it's probably trying to pick up some kind of points based item. Maybe it's gas canisters or whatever the heck you would have in this they game. Are, I've never they're, played they're, it. They're pellets, pellets as well. I had that game as well. So you've got pellets, but, and you're going to have a scoring table on the top left. Mm. Nobody's saying you can't have a scoring table. I'm going to move my scoring table in the middle of the screen so you can't see it. That'd be ridiculous. Right. So there's lots of different elements that you can do in a similar game. But if you're just a ghost, that's ch- oh, not ghost. If you're, if you're uh, a gobbler, you better look a little different as a right. gobbler. That, that's basically the point. And the because monsters, again, the monsters coming after you better not be ghost monsters. If you, if, if those elements are similar enough to Pac-Man, then it's very hard for you to make a convincing argument that you weren't copying Pac-Man. I mean, this could be a Frankenstein game, right? You could have Frankenstein's monster running around. He's yeah. trying to get pellets or, I don't know, other body parts. It might be a little bit disturbing at that level of game being chased by villagers. That would yeah. be effectively similar, right? It sounds like a Pac-Man game to me, but the expression is very different. Now, granted, it would require all kinds of other licenses, potentially. Uh, if, if there was a movie out at the time or whatever's going on. And the court's like, listen, this is going to cause Atari irreparable harm. Okay. Uh, Atari doesn't even have their game out and you have something that looks just like, well, it's something that's the very, very similar to the point where there is infringement. You're infringing on Atari's copyright. If they don't have, uh, this game stopped, they're going to lose market share. Right. This could be damaging. And the the court makes mention kind of funny to even read something like this. They go, the Odyssey games cannot be played in an Atari, nor vice versa. It's like, well, yeah, of course not. But this was a concept that was kind of important, because if Atari wasn't losing sales of its console, that would be very different, actually. It might be mm-hmm. a little different. 
Uh, but in this case, that look, you can't sell this game right now because you're causing them huge harm. And it gets sent back to the lower court to follow along with this to issue the injunction. Yeah. And in fact, here's another quote from the court finding, which does not necessarily put gamers in a very good light. It's kind of a, a backhanded comment. Video games, unlike an artist's painting or even other audiovisual works, appeal to an audience that is fairly undiscriminating insofar as their concern about more subtle differences in artistic expression. The main attraction of a game such as Pac-Man lies in the stimulation provided by the intensity of the competition. A person who is entranced by the play of the game, quote, would be disposed to overlook, end quote, many of the minor differences in detail and, quote, regard their aesthetic appeal as the same, end quote. That does sound very damning to the general <laughs> video game playing public of right. 1982. Like you guys but, don't, you guys don't care about the details. You just want the feeling you get when you play a game like this. Well, I mean, when I was, as you were reading that back and I've seen that line a bunch of times, it just struck me now, you know, the whole thing about everything that people, when, when Apple gets upset at people, yeah. they're like, Hey, look, you're copying our stuff. And they're not going to care that it's not us. That's effectively the same argument, isn't it? They're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're going to buy your thing because it looks like my thing. And they right. don't really care that it's actually ours. And effectively, it's the same argument that the court says there, although it does seriously sound patronizing. Uh, yeah. The undiscriminating. The, I mean, you might as well say the unwashed masses who play video games <laughs> in the pizza parlors. Look, but, these yahoos can't appreciate <laughs> can't appreciate art here, kids. So um, another another thing that I think is kind of funny, it's it's sort of um uh you know tragically ironic when you get down to it, is ultimately Atari's Pac-Man version for the twenty six hundred was awful and is often cited as one of the many reasons why the company suffered so much uh so many setbacks by 1983 and, and partly why the video game crash, the home video game crash in 1983 happened. It was that they had spent a lot of money to create this Pac-Man game. They rushed it so that they could get it out in time for the Christmas season. It came out and it was a huge letdown because it was such a pale comparison to the arcade experience that it was it the actual Pac-Man game that Atari made ultimately is what damaged the company's uh, uh, actual, uh, you know, um, reputation. It wasn't that some other game company created a game like Pac-Man and that damaged Atari's reputation. It was Atari's own actions that ultimately damaged its reputation. Now, that is immaterial for this case, has nothing to do with this case. It's just an interesting little side note. I'm very curious if uh, I have to look this up. I should have looked this up before this show. If Atari ever tried to reach out to Phillips after they saw the progress of the Pac-Man game where they have dashes instead of dots. It's like clearly Averett, when he's making his game for Phillips, he knows how to put dots there. Yeah. So I don't know why Pac-Man didn't have it. Just kind of curious why they weren't like, hey, buddy. How about we give you a license now? Yeah. Ours looks horrible. Yeah, We're really maybe, sorry about that whole suing you thing. Yeah, maybe uh, we'll okay. uh, have Casey Munchkin come on over and be renamed Pac-Man for the Atari 2600. And yeah. And also, here's something else that was I'm kind of curious about. So we we established in the Asteroids versus Meteors case, the court had decided that the 
expression of the idea was limited to the the version that was in both games and that therefore the copyright claim did not hold up uh, or at least did not it wasn't an infringement because the expression was limited by what we could do and that in the Pac-Man versus uh, the Casey Munchkin one it was different in that the expression of the idea could have taken different forms as evidenced by these other maze chase games and therefore, the claim of copyright infringement was valid. What I wonder is that if there had been a game, no matter how primitive, that had a similar premise to asteroids in that you are commanding a spaceship through an asteroid belt and there are also enemy spaceships and you have to avoid both the asteroids and the enemies, but it was in a different uh, a different style like let's say it is in that first person view where you're inside a cockpit and you're seeing the asteroids from the point of view of the spaceship and maybe you have some other elements in the game that can alert you if uh, if another craft is a, is either approaching you or there's a, a an asteroid that's heading towards you so that you can maneuver the ship out of the way and turn and fire on it if that had been the case then the court would be able to say well wait this, these two games have the same basic premise of navigating a ship through asteroids, firing at enemy spacecraft, but have two very different means of expression. In that case, I would imagine the court would have had to have found meteors guilty of copyright infringement. Uh, maybe not. I mean, if meteors is, if, okay, there's how many different ways you can you show it? You're saying the first person version. If you go first person, you still have a field of rocks coming at you. Yeah. Meteors, asteroids, whatever you want to call them, space debris, it's still coming at you. So it, you could even see these two games, this fictional game we're making up now, that one could be sued based on the concept of, hey, you're taking our concept. People are not going to be discriminating. You're, you're in a field, you're taking on uh, asteroids. That's asteroids, man. You're taking our game. So I, 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 I don't know if the case would have been decided differently because it's also, it, it's so early. I don't think the court might have had the foresight to even think of a first-person experience yeah. in general. And you're talking about a primitive version. If it, if it's so primitive that you have like several lines to depict the cockpit, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of like, what, like what Star Fox? That's a game that basically is that, right? That's what we're talking sure, about. Sure. So if you had like a primitive Star Fox, would that have worked? I'm just very curious because when I saw this case way back when, the first thing I thought of was R-Type. I don't know if you played R-Type as a game. I'm like, that's like Asteroids, except mm. it's side scroller. And they have awesome alien ships, and actually, it's kind of the same game as after I started thinking about it. Well, I, uh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, if you could successfully make the argument of, oh, sure, we have the same idea as asteroids, but our version is a completely different expression of that idea, then I think you could follow into the category that meteors ultimately fell into. Um, that you well, except well, no. In that case, actually, you would say that you weren't you weren't infringing upon copyright at all because you had right. you had taken you know, you can't copyright that original idea. So therefore, like your expression of that idea and our expression of this idea are so fundamentally different from one another that there's no copyright infringement. That these are two very different game experiences that call upon the same thing. Because otherwise, the maze chase games. Whichever one came first would be able to claim copyright infringement on all the others. It wouldn't matter if the design was a car instead of a gobbler because you're saying, well, it's the exact same experience. You're, you're navigating a, a 
a piece through a maze being chased down by enemies. I mean, <laughs> because it, it, this is the kind of stuff that drives me nuts about copyright uh, cases, because it almost seems arbitrary uh, when you go case by case like this and say, well, the, the logic that's being applied in this one case seems like it's not being applied in this other case. Now, in the ones we've talked about, I understand the perspectives, and I even agree to a certain extent, especially putting myself in the place of the time, right, and the limitations of the technology. Mm. But it still it is one of those things that can be a real head scratcher. And yeah. ult- ultimately, law is something that people have made. So therefore, it is going to have the same sort of limitations and failings as people. Yeah, these these tests are to be applied ad hoc. That's the way this is supposed to be. And and uh, I join you in the in the confusion slash rage when I first saw this. I was just like, I don't understand how this could be. And the fun thing about law is that you have to make both of these things that seem completely opposite. You have to somehow harmonize them. When you figure out how, how to harmonize them, that's how you're building your rules when it comes to all of this stuff. So the only way this really works is saying, okay, there's this, these are two different examples of the idea expression unity. Is there an idea expression unity when it comes to meteors? Yes. Is that the case when it comes to Pac-Man? No, because hmm. this is where the line is. Even though these games looked very different, I thought from just a, a they called it an ordinary observer point of view. To me, that just seems like any human being. Just take a look at it. They don't actually want you to dissect things either, which is kind of an interesting idea. If you just looked at them, you wouldn't think Casey Munchkin is the same game as Pac-Man. It's just it you wouldn't be that confused. But you would say asteroids and meteors are the same. But yeah. this this is just the way this stuff turned out over time. Because otherwise, we would never have things like Mario and Sonic and Bunk. Like they're all side scrollers, right? Right. They're all this this little cute mascot character, they get powered up, they're collecting something of some sort. One's got rings, one's got coins. Um, how are they getting about it? One's breaking it with his hand above his head. Another one is breaking it as he spins into a ball. The fact that they're expressed so differently is actually important because if we don't have that, we would just have a bunch of clone games where they're, okay, here's your plumber. I mean, I guess the question, I would love to see that lawsuit of somebody breaking down Super Mario. It's like, okay, how, how many ways can you express an avenging plumber? <laughs> uh, only one good one. It's only one good one. But yeah, this was a lot of fun to look into. It was definitely outside of my normal zone. So uh, I got to thank you, Ayaz, for for joining me and not just joining me, but for being the one to suggest these two cases in particular as the subject for this episode, because it turned out to be a really fascinating kind of discussion, both of the the legal uh, status of video games and uh, just the 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 weird mind-bending logic you have to apply when it comes to copyright. Well, thanks for having me, and I, I probably was influenced by listening to the Atari three-parter, because I was like, oh, that's really bizarre. Oh, right, their game kind of sucked. That reminds me of these cases. <laughs> these two cases that drove me insane. Here they are. And so they, they, they brought it back, these, these, these horrible uh, ideas. And one of the reasons why I never went into intellectual property law, as an aside, was because of cases like this. It was, some of it does seem arbitrary, and could drive a person crazy. So yeah. I decided, don't feel like doing that. And ended up on this podcast today. <laughs> and and now here we are. Uh, so I, as and I, plan on doing another episode about uh, a lawsuit in tech, uh, specifically actually a series of lawsuits. Uh, the the We mentioned it earlier, the Apple-Samsung battles. 
And we were originally going to include that in our discussion today, but then it just it was it became obvious very early on that that would have been we would have been either super truncating all the discussion and thus not really illustrating anything useful, or it would go on so long that it would have had to have been split up into multiple episodes anyway. So Ayaz is going to come back at a later date that we will have to determine when our schedules will allow us to do this again. Uh, and we, we will talk about that. We've already started the notes on that. So the, the, I guess the way, depending on how you look at it, the nice thing about that story is it's still developing. <laughs> like from, an, from 2010 an to now. It's an ongoing war that, and the funny thing about it is still, as an aside, is the fact that they are partners yeah. in a number of ventures when it comes to components inside of iPhones, of Apple devices, etc. The fact that Samsung is set, it's their partner in some degrees, and also they're stabbing their partner. It's just a, a very strange concept of like, hey, I love you. Now let me kill you. Right. That's what they both are doing. Yeah. Together. And, and they're, they're re- fairly recent developments on that front as well with Apple mm-hmm. looking into, uh, potential other, uh, uh, microchip processors that kind of, or, or manufacturers rather and, and other component manufacturers, uh, and kind of getting away from some of the Samsung stuff. So that, that, I'm sure that has no, I'm sure it has to do with a lot of different factors. One of them being the, massive number of lawsuits between the two. So we will talk about that at a, on a future episode of tech stuff. Um, I ask, thank you once again for joining me. Where can people find your stuff? You can find my stuff. Uh, easiest way is on Twitter, twitter.com slash I that's I Y A Z. I'm not the singer. That is at I live. Uh, if you want to go find him, uh, you can also find my work at CNET.com. I'm doing a couple of shows here. I also do a fun show with Jonathan Strickland and Eric Sandine called Podcast Without Pretense, available at gfqnetwork.com. So I'm everywhere, and it's so fun to be a part of this show again because this was a trip down memory lane. Yeah, yeah, and it'll help make up for how painful the Samsung Apple one will be because that's just a, I mean, there's just a whole bunch of good old-fashioned hate in that episode. Well, guys, if you want to get in touch with me and suggest future topics for episodes uh, or even a, a, a guest host or someone I should interview, please drop me a line. Let me know what you think. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can send me a message on Twitter or Facebook or Tumblr. The handle of all three of those is techstuffhsw. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 